Hello there and thank you for downloading this Eye on Education podcast from the 16th of September. This week we discussed whether esports or competitive video gaming should be taught in schools. We were joined by Tom Dore, who is Head of Education at British Esports, and also Lisa Grace Wilson, the Editorial Director at Teach Middle East magazine. We had plenty of opposing views on the programme, so it was a very animated half hour. Plus, as thousands of students start university for the first time, we got hints and tips on how to handle the first few weeks for both teens and parents. And in our My Classroom feature, we explored a school that has no set location. Instead, pupils learn across 10 countries over the course of three years. Teacher Christopher Allange from Think Global School joined us to talk through how it works. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom, now accepting applications from FS1 to Year 8. Right, we are back in the room and we are back with our special Eye on Education. And we're kicking off this hour with a roundup of all the school's stories that we've spotted in the past week. First up, uh, the way in which uh, school students... Zena's here, by the way, to, yeah. to keep me company. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. Um, only for another uh, one hour and 55 minutes, though, and then she's leaving me forever. Wow. <laughs> so I'm moving into the uh I'm moving from sad into angry phase now. Yeah, I know. It's a gradual it's a gradual phase. Whenever I get whenever I'm sad I actually just get angry. It's a, it's a bit of a um personality defect that I have. It's fine. It's not a defect, yeah. It it's is a, a defect. The way you deal with it. Yeah, I just get get angry. <laughs> Why get sad when you could just be horrible to everyone? Um, okay, so uh, speaking of uh, situations when you could be sad, this is going to sound like this, this, uh, this, this juncture is not working at all. So I'm going to pause. We're going to stop talking about Xena. I'm going to stop talking about my personality. And we're going to move into the fact that uh, some British schools in Dubai are going to close early on Monday to allow families to watch the televised funeral of Queen Elizabeth II C. Yes, actually, Serena told me about this because uh, her her daughter uh, received a circular from her school that they said, oh, you can uh, either leave early on Monday or we will have a special ceremony. So others will observe a two-minute silence as a mark of respect to the country's longest-serving monarch, uh, to the UK's longest-serving monarch. Now, the funeral service will take place at 2 p.m. UAE time. So uh, schools, for example, Dubai College said in a letter to parents it would close early on Monday after securing mission from the KHDA. Now, Talim Group, which has three British curriculum schools in Dubai, said its pupils would have the option to finish the school day earlier on Monday. Now, children who don't leave early will watch the broadcast live uh, in their auditoriums in uh, place of regular lessons. Uh, and we all know the UAE is home to an estimated 240,000 Britons, and there are about 165 schools offering the British curriculum in the UAE. In fact, it's the most popular curriculum here. So my kids have been offered the option to go home early. Okay. Needless to say, I'm keeping them in school. Of course. Yeah, I, I work. I can't. I, I can't pick them up and, and just have them hanging around the house. I don't have... I don't have British television. I'm not sure whether a nine-year-old and an eight-year-old want to watch an hour and a half's worth of, of a funeral. I'm going to make sure that they watch the highlights. That sounds wrong, but you know what I mean, the sort of excerpts in the evening, because I think it's important that they are aware of this historic 
occurrence. Is that how long it is? An hour and a half? At least. Okay. Yeah. And, and I, my feeling is that, that the children's education is valuable and they should be in class. But I understand that a lot, I mean, many of my friends feel that it's important for the children to be at home to, to watch it. That's an interesting opinion because I've never heard any parent, you know, since the announcement was made. Everyone it, else is quite happy for Go it. against it. Exactly. I know. I'm just a bit like, I think that maths and English is important and they could catch up on this historical event after the occasion. It's one day. Now my kids go to a British curriculum school as well and they have so many questions because they see it on TV all the time. So uh, it's been in the news lately. Uh, They're very aware of it. That's true. They are, and, it, and it is an extraordinarily historic moment. You know, we are exactly. moving from the Elizabethan age that has lasted 96 years into, uh, you know, into King Charles's, to yeah. King Charles III's era. Exactly. And, you know, my kids, uh, particularly, they they want to participate in it and I think they need to learn more about uh, you know they go to a British curriculum school so it is going to be hard. are you bringing them home early uh, yes you are as well okay. yes I am interesting but you are going to cover this on Monday yes we will be covering uh, the Queen's funeral on Monday we are going to be speaking to the UK ambassador to the UAE he will be joining us live at 10 o'clock uh, we've also got a, a royal reporter Louise Burke who will be joining us to talk us through the process of the day who is expected to be at the funeral who hasn't been invited interesting list there uh, and essentially uh, you know what's next I suppose because after the funeral there will be a coronation uh, that normally happens at least two or three months afterwards so I am guessing that we'll be uh, seeing King Charles's coronation at uh, sometime in December exciting yeah, that's that is a moment of um, yeah. That, I think that's You're a moment of celebration. You're your Britishness. I'm I, <laughs> I'm not I I'm not a huge royalist. I I, okay. I think I think the royals the royals perform a very important function and they're a fantastic family. The Queen was an amazing woman who performed many very boring tasks with absolute grace and dignity. I mean, how many hospitals has the, has the poor queen had to open uh, in, the, in the pouring rain and the cold? Like, I mean, she's really a truly extraordinary individual. Um, she did perform her duties well. She was wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, unquestionably. Uh, but I'm very conscious that we live in the UAE and even though there's a quarter of a million of us Brits here, uh, there are plenty of other people who maybe don't feel the same connection. So true. That's my hesitation, my slight hesitation. Anyway, um, in moving on to uh, the fact that one of the, you know, earlier we talked about the fact that the UAE is one of the top destinations for expats. We've seen evidence of that with a new school, haven't we? Exactly. We're seeing new schools catering to different segments of the community, whether it's a nationality or a different belief. So last week we talked about the Chinese school in Dubai and how it's growing in numbers. And this week we learned that there is a Jewish nursery in Dubai, the only one in the Gulf. And uh, from one pupil they've now got 45 and they expect to have about 200 enrollments by the end of the year there's also a new jewish educational campus uh, to be established on Saadiat island in abu dhabi early next year now meanwhile in the capital uh, the first russian school has started welcoming pupils um, it's called the russian school of abu dhabi it's operated by a prestigious uh, education company, the Primakov School. It's in Moscow, and it's often named among the top educational institutions there. Uh, and the launch comes as the Russian-speaking population in the Emirates grows. Now, there, 
I've seen uh, a Russian school in Dubai before. It's in the Mohaisna area. It used to be near the Philippine consulate, the where the former location of the Philippine consulate. It's called the Russian International School. So it's very interesting that at this point in time, uh, a second Russian school is opening in the country. Absolutely fascinating to hear how uh, the population continues to become yet more varied and, and the country's, you know, evidence of the country's tolerance uh, can be seen in those two schools. Uh, very interesting. Right. Uh, children aged six months and above should be vaccinated against flu. That's interesting because obviously we sort of moved off the subject of COVID slightly. Now it's all about the flu vaccine. Exactly. And one of the things that uh, I noticed recently is that a lot of our neighbours are sick. Really? Yes. And they all go to the same schools. So, oh, so people are catching stuff off each other because it's the beginning of term, I they're guess. They're down with the flu, exactly. And not a lot of them believe in the flu vaccine. So uh, schools start a new term. Uh, more people travel to the UAE for winter break. So it's September is typically the start of flu season. I have to admit, my kids are not vaccinated against the flu vaccine. Not yet, but I think uh, they've the flu, just... sorry. Yeah, they've just started offering it, haven't they? Uh, so are the authorities recommending that children over six should get it? Over six months, yes. Over six months? Yeah. Oh, Last year gosh. we didn't get it um, because my husband said, oh, there's no need, don't worry, they'll catch something and then they'll get rid of it. It's fine. I can't remember now. Last year feels so long ago. I know. Uh, but, but definitely this year I'll, I'll take them for the jab. It's, it's so quick and easy. It's just not a big deal. Exactly. You just distract them, get them to wiggle their toes, look the opposite direction, and then it's done. <laughs> I think I'm going to do it. Now, the 2022 to 23 vaccine, it's slightly different to previous years due to the constantly evolving strain of flu now circulating in certain communities. So um, it's a combination quadrivalent vaccine effective against four flu viruses. Now, cases usually increase in October and November. That's exactly what our pediatrician told us. And they can continue through to June uh, next year. So as a result, uh, doctors are recommending uh, that we give our kids the flu vaccine. Do you remember we had that doctor uh, from the World Health Organization based in Australia? He came on the program to talk to us about the uh, mass. They have a, had a really bad flu wave in Australia because, of course, their winter was our summer. Oh, yeah. And they, they experienced a really, really bad uh, sort of stint of flu. You know, thousands of people struggling with it and, and the hospitals filled up. And there were strong suggestions there that because it had been a strong, uh, you know, uh, a bad flu season in Australia in the Southern Hemisphere, that we were likely to get a similarly strong flu season in this. So that's where this story is coming from. Yeah. And I remember it was exacerbated by the fact that they still had quite a few cases of COVID at that time. Yeah. Absolutely. Interestingly, the, the COVID numbers haven't gone up a great deal at the beginning of the school term, which you sort of, you'd have expected with everyone coming back after the summer, there'd be some lurking cases. But actually, it's been it's been fine. They haven't spiked at all. Exactly. During the summer, we were talking about we have to follow this story. Let's see how many, ca you know, how many COVID cases are there when school starts. But actually, it's surprisingly... It's been fine. Yeah, it's it? been fine. Meanwhile, moving on to uh, school transport, because Abu Dhabi police uh, actually rather nicely come out mm. and they're, they're commending drivers rather than telling them off which which is an unusual <laughs> state of affairs for the police to be honest what have they been saying okay so basically police in Abu Dhabi they've commended drivers for following stop signs on school buses and according to their media office uh, the police force has done so as part of a wide-reaching awareness campaign ensuring road safety now 93% of drivers in the capital observe rules surrounding school bus stop signs and that's up from 76% in 
2019. So that's that's why um, you know good they're news. saying it's good news. Uh, the police earlier said 17% of motorists there in Abu Dhabi don't stop when the school bus stop signs are displayed. Now authorities there they've listed out the full set of rules that mo- motorists must follow when a school bus stop sign is out. It's really easy on single lane roads. You should. Uh, uh, look in both directions. You should stop at a distance of at least five meters. And on two-way roads, the driver headed in the same direction of the bus must stop at a distance of at least five meters. If you don't do that, you've got to be a really special type of driver. <laughs> if you don't want to protect school children uh, because you're in a rush, that I mean, you really got to you know sense check yourself at that point. If you're if you're being aggressive towards a school bus. Well, you'd be surprised. You do the school run every day, so you know how parents can be aggressive on I'm the very school aggressive. parking lot. I'm very aggressive in the school parking lot. I have my spot and no one else is allowed in it. <laughs> really? Yeah. You have, you've got your own spot. I know my own spot. I have my own route. I have my own spot. I, I, it's all about tactics when it comes to the school run. Oh, gosh. Start to run down to a, I, I run it to a tight schedule. If I'm even one minute late, then there's issues on Omskim Road. Gosh. I know exactly. It, it's... It's the only way to make it bearable because most of the time it is just almost unbearable. Let's continue this conversation before 12 p.m. because I've got my own school run pet peeves to share with you. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Before Zena leaves, we get to hear what she hates about the school run. I'm in. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Hello there, welcome back to the programme. Yes, it is Eye on Education. It is our special segment on schools. And I'm really looking forward to this topic uh, because it's one I I feel I've got skin in the game on this one because I have quite strong feelings about it. Uh, And the fact, uh, basically it all comes down to the fact that increasing numbers of schools and universities are starting to teach e-sports or competitive video gaming in classes. In fact, here in Dubai, Chinese tech company Lenovo has introduced an e-sports programme in including its first Legion Gaming Zone at GEMS Modern Academy and work is underway on a second site at GEMS First Point School, The Villa. Now, enthusiasts say that gaming can foster positive interactions and friendships among students and teach teamwork and communication. They also say uh, participation in esports can inspire interest in pursuing STEAM careers. You know, that's the uh, the maths and technology careers and also uh, for people to study at a higher education. Now, I have to admit, I am going to take some persuading on this topic. I'm not necessarily a fan of gaming per se. I do spend most of my time trying to keep the kids off the devices, but admittedly, they are only eight and nine. uh, And I want to hear your views on this as well. So please do get in touch with us. Uh, 4001 is the text line, or you can message us 04871 with your views. Joining us now on the line, willing to put himself in the battle axes view. Uh, I call call myself the battle axe in this situation. Um, And give us the argument in favour of esports is Tom Dore. He is Head of Education at British Esports, which is the UK's not-for-profit national body for the uh, for the gaming. Um, and he's also looking at launching an esports leagues in schools and colleges throughout the United Kingdom. Tom, how are you? Hi, good morning. Yeah, very well, thank you. Um, you thanks me? for inviting me on. It's an absolute pleasure. Joining me on team, so you are at a safe distance uh, in the UK <laughs> uh, to have this conversation. Okay, tell me, what is esports? Because for some people listening to this, it might have completely passed them by. Is it basically just playing video games? Yeah, so esports is classified as organised competitive video gaming. It's always human versus human as well. So it's not 
in your bedroom, on your own, playing against the computer, late at night, eating Doritos, drinking energy drink. That's the very stereotypical game um, image, if you like, of video gaming. Esports is not that. Esports is always human versus human. It's always competitive. So in the same way that we acknowledge uh, team-based activities, team-based sports, um, help young people to develop a whole range of character skills and holistic skills, um, esports does the same thing because it's team based because you're communicating with your teammates because you are uh you there's leadership roles um there's decision making there's problem solving all happening within the game exactly as happens in traditional sport i mean there is still a mental hurdle i think for a lot of parents who still have that stereotypical view of uh video gaming essentially that it's something done in your in your bedroom on your own is it <laughs> Are you sure it really does encourage all these attributes in students? Surely it'd be better for them to be out playing football with their mates in real life rather than fiddling with their thumbs. Yeah, look, it's all about balance. It's all about moderation. Everything that we do in life, be that um, going to the gym, being uh, playing traditional sport, being eating, going to the tanning salon. You know, everything is all about balance and moderation. And that's certainly what we push at British Esports. Look, I'm a teacher as well. I've taught for 18 years. I'm, I've got a background in traditional sport. I'm a cricket coach. I run golf at the school I teach in. Um, I got into this because I could see just how many young people um, absolutely love video gaming and how we can use that as a hook to motivate and engage young people. Just imagine what, what happens in schools when young people are not into traditional sports. They don't play for the traditional sports teams or they're not into, they don't um, act in the, in the school play, or they don't play an instrument in the school orchestra. Where are they getting their team-based activities from? Where are they developing these um, team-based holistic character skills that we know are so important? Esports is an avenue that they can do that in, especially if they're into all things digital, if they're into all things tech. It's their opportunity to represent their school, represent their college, represent their university and therefore gain success, gain recognition for doing that in exactly the same way other, other people do. Now, if we can take part, a lot of my role is, is, is spent talking to educators, talking to head teachers, talking to parents. And if we can get past the point of looking at it as just being video gaming and screen time and talk about balance and moderation and healthy lifestyles, but then look at the skills they are developing through doing this, the digital based skills, the creative media skills, the STEM, STEAM-based skills that you've already mentioned. These are the skills that society need moving forward. And the jobs that exist in the global esports industry, but in then, then in the wider linked digital tech creative spaces, these are the skills that um, those employers are looking for, uh, essentially. And so esports is one vehicle through which young people can develop these skills. I mean, you guys have already started creating a, a, an esports uh, sort of a league, I suppose, or, or academy style uh, curriculum in the UK. Yeah. Um, what should a good esports programme in a school look like, in your view? Yeah, sure. So in the UK, for the last five years, we've been running the British Esports Student Champs. Over the last academic year, we had we had 700 school teams and about over three and a half thousand young people playing on a Wednesday after school in exactly the same way you would in traditional sports using four different age appropriate video games. Um, so a lot of young people say, oh, we, we want to play Call of Duty or, um, you know, I want to play CSGO. They're in the, in the UK, they're 18 rated games in exactly the same way as you get for, for films and things like that. So, of course, we don't use those sorts of games. Uh, so it's age appropriate games um, culminating in live grand finals. Um, at, at the end of the year on stage, 
being streamed to live audiences around around the world. The live grand finals that we had last summer, we had 200,000 people, concurrent viewers, watching the stream of the live grand final. So when I'm feeling quite bullish, I'll say to head teachers and principals, how many people did you have watching your last first 15 rugby match? Or how many people did you have watching that last cricket match? Um, 10, 15, 20, if you're lucky. We had 200,000 people watching this online, your different colleges, schools playing against each other. Um, so that's the competitive side of stuff. So there's the competitive angle of, of esports, very much team versus team, human versus human, as I mentioned. Lots of leadership roles that students take on as well. You know, the team manager designing the merchandising, designing the kit, acting as, as an analyst, acting as a coach for the team, um, creating highlight reels of, uh, of the game that they can post on social media. Lots of wider leadership roles that students take on within the organization. Then there's the competitive side of things, and we've worked, uh, sorry, the academic side of things, and we've worked with Pearson, the, the global learning company, to develop BTECs in esports, so level two and level three BTECs. In the same way, there are BTECs, sort of their vocational qualifications in sport, in music, in business, in uh, marketing. Esports is now one of those um, courses in the UK. It's, it's been approved by the British government, so schools and colleges can draw down central government funding to teach it. Uh, and last year we had was the second year of the qualification. We had two and a half thousand young people studying it. This year we're predicting between five and a half and six thousand young people who are going to be studying this this BTEC qualification. Um, Twenty different units ranging from esports specific things like skills and analysis, um, streaming, video production, through to units based around business, around entrepreneurship, around digital media, around branding, health and well-being. But all using esports as that vehicle. Um, Gem's first point school in Dubai is is the first school in the only school at the moment in the Middle East to be teaching this qualification as well. They launched it last year, hugely successful. Uh, Michael Bradbury is is the teacher doing great things in Dubai with that at the moment. They're really trailblazing this space in, in Dubai. I mean, absolutely fascinating to hear how it's going. I've got so many more questions to ask you. Can I keep you on the line? Uh, we are in no. conversation with Tom Dore. He's head of education at British Esports, which is the UK's not-for-profit national body uh, for that gaming activity. We'll be back with him in just a sec. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello, welcome back. Uh, we are discussing whether or not esports should be included in the school's curriculum on the programme this hour. Lots of people getting in touch with us with their views. Uh, James says, uh, in fact, when we're mid-conversation with Tom Dore, who is Head of Education at British Esports, the UK's not-for-profit national body for esports. He's a teacher, but he's also got involved uh, with video gaming in the school's context. Tom, thank you for staying with us. I really appreciate it. Um, no yeah, lots, lots of messages coming in. In fact, James uh, text in saying, uh, to be honest, you make a, a good case. Uh, hard to argue with that. What a brilliant presentation. Uh, and I have to agree, there will be millions of opportunities in tech, design, graphics and animation. And that is where they will hire from. Uh, then there's Web3, blockchain and the metaverse. Not everyone is agreeing with you, though. It has to be said, uh, this person types in, have they given their name? Uh, no, I don't think they have. But they go, hell no. <laughs> no video games at all. Ridiculous. That serves them nothing. Uh, and Sanjay says, that's all what we all need. 
need more screen time. I think it's best left as it is and cultivated naturally if the kids are into it. Uh, meanwhile, my goodness me, Liz has sent a lovely long message, which I'll have a look at in a minute, uh, talking about esports being a massive multi-million dollar business. And uh, I suggest that maybe you're recruiting kids, who most of whom enjoy playing with their mates on their downtime, but now might be encouraged to do it professionally. And of course, to do it professionally, you have to spend an awful lot of time doing it. I mean, as far as the amount of time that you think people should be learning esports, do you consider it should be included in the curriculum alongside math, science and English? Or do you think it should be an extra curricular activity? Well, look, from an academic standpoint, if it's an actual curriculum based um, course like like the BTEC that I've mentioned that, that we have in here in the UK, then then it is. Uh, then it forms part of the curriculum time. So, for example, in the UK, um, young people at, at, in sixth form or FE colleges are going to be choosing, you know, maths, English and esports uh, as one of their three or four subjects or the, the, the full BTEC, the extended diploma, is the equivalent of three A-levels here in the UK. Um, so from that point of view, absolutely, it's an academic curriculum time. From the competitive side of things, though, that, that's a lunchtime club. It's an, it's an after-school activity. It's an extracurricular activity, exactly like music, art, drama, sport, traditional sports are, are in schools. So it, it can work across, you know, across different media, really. I mean, in many ways, it's even me from a standpoint of I prefer the children not to be on screens. Even I can see that it would be easier to swim with the tide rather than against it and, and to sort of keep control over what's going on and, and have more awareness rather than in this constant battle to try and get them off the screens. I mean, how, exactly. can, how can parents get involved in this situation? How would you recommend someone, you know, like me <laughs> trying to figure out what they should be allowed to do? Yeah, sure. Look, as, as with anything, as a parent, I'm, I, I've got an 11-year-old, I've, I've got an 8-year-old. You've got to be interested in what they're doing. You've got to try and understand what they're doing. Um, there is a generational disconnect between, and look, I'm classing myself here, I'm in my mid-40s. There's a generational disconnect between people my age and young people now. Because we have, we, myself, I haven't grown up with super fast broadband. I haven't grown up with connectivity like young people have now. This is their world. They are digital natives. They live in this connected world uh, of virtual friendships being equally as strong as uh, actual in-life, in-person friendships, which is something that's very difficult for my generation and above to understand. But just because it's different doesn't make it wrong. And that's something that we really, uh, as parents, as educators, need, need to appreciate. So it is all about balance. It, it is all about moderation. It is understanding what um, your children are doing. So, for example, Fortnite, you know, um, it's a great game, but I know it's one that has parents banging their head against a brick wall sometimes. Fortnite games last no more than 15 or 20 minutes in, in, in length. OK, so if you understand that, if you appreciate that and you see that, that, they're, that they're 10 minutes into a game, they're down to the last 20 players in that game, it's not going to last any more than five or 10 minutes. So if you said to them, right, your, your dinner's going to be ready in, in 10 minutes, OK, instead of pulling them off that game right there, right now, where they might be playing with one of their friends, coming to the end of a game, the really important part, if you turn the Xbox or PlayStation or computer off at that point, of course they're going to get mad with you. Of course they're going to shout at you. However, if you say, right, I can see you're almost at the end of this game. You're doing really well. I can see that. I know it's going to be over in the next five or ten minutes. Don't start another game, though, because your tea's ready. Come down and have that. 
Okay, so you've got to manage their behavior, manage their expectations exactly as you would with traditional sport or music. You wouldn't pull them out of the band or the orchestra um, halfway through a piece or, you know, half an hour into, into, the, in, into the football match. You don't pull them off the pitch. Same, it's the same thing with esports. If they're playing with their friends, if they're playing as part of a team, you've got to understand the dynamics and how it actually works. Really interesting. And I have to say, I've, uh, I, yeah, I can see that I need to take an interest in what the children are doing when they're on these screens, rather than just put up a, a massive wall against it, because ultimately, they are just going to keep on asking and trying. Uh, I think it's probably the biggest argument that we have at home at the moment is, is about screen time and games time. Uh, so really interesting yeah. to speak to you, Tom. Thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate thank it. You. I know you got up very early in the morning for us. So we really appreciate <laughs> no it. Uh, Tom Dore, the head of education at British Esports, uh, who is looking at launching esports leagues in schools and colleges throughout the UK. Now, is that something that you would like to see right here in the UAE? Do get into touch with me i'd love to hear your views this is eye on education on the agenda with the royal grammar school guildford dubai sister school to one of the most respected schools in the united kingdom now accepting applications from fs1 to year eight and we are discussing whether or not esports should be taught in schools. Lots of people getting a, a very up, uh, well, heated, I suppose, uh, arguably reasonably so. Uh, one person here saying kids don't get enough exercise, and it is. No, 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 in my opinion. Samuel says kids should be allowed some screen time each day, but you have to strike a balance. I allow my three kids at home one and a half hours screen time to play their games and also for video. The rest of the time, we make sure they play with each other and with their toys. Sharon says we have have to remember that there are YouTubers out there who've made millions of dollars out of streaming their gaming and getting millions of followers. They're basically looked at by heroes by our kids that watch them. So it's not surprising that our kids want to emulate them. Uh, uh, but there are suggestions that there are, that Sharon thinks that they are, however, good role models. So therefore, uh, maybe it's OK for them to watch them. Really interesting stuff. Joined on the line now uh, by Lisa Grace Wilson. She's editorial director at Teach Middle East. We've just heard from the esports expert Tom Dore, who said that all schools should consider introducing a robust esports programme because it prepares students for a digital future. So are schools here in the UAE embracing it? And whether, you know, is that a good idea? Lisa, what do you think the voice of reason oh i, I want I, I have got two two sides to this story because as a mother i want to ban the thing like yes, i just so want to get rid of it but as an educator i know the value that it could possibly provide i mean you have to understand the students that we have their futures currently being shaped and they're going to go into these fields game design web development programming they're going to be the product development managers for these gaming companies um, if we don't prepare them who will so it's kind of like the evil that you don't want to embrace um, my boys if if i want to see them get out take the games away and they lose kind of their consciousness for a minute and forget who's mother and whose child. But do I want them to get into programming? Yes. Do I want them to have options open that will provide them jobs in the future? Yes. And if their school has an esports program, would I encourage them to do it? Possibly, yes. If they are interested themselves, I would want them to explore it. I just feel like we have to create that balance. We have to set really strict time limits. We have to make sure that they get enough physical activity because they won't choose to get it if we don't make those um, boundaries clear. Um, so 
there is value, but gosh, it really is a hard pill to swallow. It really is, isn't it? Uh, and Tom did point out that we are from a, a different generation. So in many ways, we are. It, it's sort of natural that we're finding it hard to fathom that our children should be allowed to do it. Uh, one message here coming in saying curriculum schedules are super cramped already. So will PE be replaced by this? I don't agree at all. I mean, actually, uh, Tom from the Esports Federation in the UK suggested that it would be an after-school activity. So, so an extra in that environment. But do you think it should be an extra that parents are choosing? You know, I mean, I've chosen at huge expense rugby and swimming for my children this year. Uh, should I have maybe chosen esports? It depends on the child. I think you can't choose esports um, and not choose an actual sport. I think you probably need to have a little balance. So maybe rugby and esports if they're interested in both. So don't don't force your child into it. But if your child has that inkling towards esports, um, maybe that's an opportunity for them. Don't shut the door. It's what I'm trying to tell myself as I'm telling everybody on radio. I'm exactly the same. I mean, Tom was very interesting about how uh, ultimately, you, you know, the children are going to want to play it anyway. So the secret is to frame it in, in a sort of moderate environment. But I mean, so interested to get everyone views, everyone's views. Thank you, Lisa Grace Wilson there uh, from Teach Middle East for your, your voice of reason, your calming voice of reason, which we like to get on the radio uh, each week. Do keep your views coming in. I know that you're on your way to pick the kids up from school. I'd love to find out what they think as well. You know, I bet they love esports to be... Uh, an ECA, an extra school activity. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there, welcome back to the programme. Now, thousands of students have started university for the first time in the last week or so. And let's be honest, it's often a time of tension for teens and parents alike. Now, international higher education institutions in Dubai have reported significant growth in student numbers. That's according to new data revealed by the KHDA. Uh, universities reported annual enrolment growth of 3.6%, with more than 29,000 students currently enrolled in university programmes. And for many people going to those universities, it might be the first time that they've lived away from home. I think that's a change that might affect parents sometimes more than pupils as mums and dads struggle with empty nest syndrome. So in the next half hour, we're going to get advice from several experts on how best to handle this period of transition. We're going to kick off uh, with Soraya Beheschi, who is the Regional Director at Crimson Education. Hi, Soraya. How are you? Thank you for joining me. Hi, I'm very well. I'm joining you from England. So I'm actually a little bit cold, as you can see from my nice uh, university hoodie that I'm wearing. How are you? I'm very well indeed. And do you know, weirdly, uh, this is probably not something I should mention on the radio, but I had a weird dream last night about autumn in England and it being really stormy. Uh, so there you go. Maybe I was preempting this conversation because it is freezing there at the moment. Um, Soraya, t- tell me, is this a difficult time for students? I cast my mind back when I was thinking about it to my freshers week. And I have to say, even though I'd actually been to boarding school before, so I wasn't worried about leaving my parents, I did find starting university very daunting. I think it really depends. I found it very exciting. Um, And like you, I'd been to boarding school as well. So I was used to not being at home necessarily and kind of doing things away from my parents. Um, So for some, for some, it's going to be that the excitement will outweigh the, you know, the, the worry, the anxiety for others, it'll be a lot more anxiety inducing. I would say that most students on the whole are 
more excited than anxious. There are little things that one might fear um, not knowing how to do, but those are pretty solvable. And I think most students are a little bit aware of that. Um, yeah. So how about uh, some of the thornier issues, things like figuring out, uh, you know, where to go for your modules? I remember I actually missed an entire module for for one term because there's that sense that you are responsible for yourself for the first time. There's no sort of school, you know, form teacher or yeah. tutor overseeing your behaviour or even your, your parents, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. And I think that that's why doing the work to get to know yourself and really get to understand yourself before you get to uni is really important. That's something that we really try to get students to do on Crimson. It's a lot of the work that they're doing with their team members is trying to understand who they are. It's quite non-tangible, but very, very important. Many students start that process of getting to know themselves once they're actually at university. Um, And and I think that's a real shame. I mean, I had a few 820 classes, but I know I'm a, an early bird, so it was no problem for me to make it. But I know some you know, friends or peers when I was at university who definitely overestimated their ability to be awake in the mornings. <laughs> I mean, at Crimson Education, you help, uh, you help students choose the right college for them, the right school for them. Do you think it's important, for, for example, to look at whether or not you're going to a campus college or whether you're in town? Do you think that maybe the campus colleges feel more family-like? Um, it, yeah, yeah. So you, it, it definitely depends. I mean, I went to Columbia and had many friends at NYU as well. And for sure, we did not have that same university campus experience that many students say at smaller universities with more enclosed campuses had. Um, At Columbia, for instance, most of your social life really happens in New York City outside the university. And that can be a little bit alienating for students, I think, who are really used to a very tight knit community. But then if you're at a university like Yale, you know, it's much um, smaller. Everyone knows each other. In the UK, if you're at, you know, Oxbridge, you have the collegiate system, which can make a big university feel really intimate. Um, and cozy and and sort of tight knit. Um, I do think that makes a difference. On on the other hand, a lot of kids coming from Dubai are going to be used to a really cosmopolitan and international environment. And for me, for instance, that was one of the reasons why New York was such an attraction for me. I felt it would be really hard to go to a a small town. So it is different for everyone. And there's a lot of work to be done. And not only looking at those things, but also, you know, the kind of facilities, what kind of community exists on campus, what kind, like, what's the approach to jobs and networking. At Columbia, it being in New York, we had, you know, the United Nations, world leaders, um, Wall Street people coming in very, very frequently and interacting with students, which was exciting for some, could have been daunting for others who, you know, maybe felt that that created a high pressure environment. Do you think that students from Dubai and and the UAE find it easier than others to fit in? Or do you think they live quite sheltered lives here? So, uh, you know, they might flounder when they leave home and go to university. I think they probably find it easier to fit in. Um, I mean, third culture kids notoriously might find it difficult to to fit into like a very um, homogenous small environment, but an international university is inherently cosmopolitan. And so I think, you know, those those students from Dubai may have a leg up because they're used to being in these extremely diverse and international environments. Um, That being said, students from Dubai may find it harder to get in 
Um, it's that, you know, the numbers of students who are being sent to top universities um, suggest that, yeah, it's harder for students from cities like Dubai to actually get a place at top universities compared to even other cities in the region, um, like in, in Jordan and Israel and Egypt. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the students, but there is another section of society affected by children go to un- going to university, and that is, of course, parents. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I... I don't actually remember how my parents dealt with me going to uni. I think they were pretty sanguine about it, to be honest. But for others, it is a a real sort of empty nest moment. How should parents be dealing with uh, this this period of flux? I think, you know, if you can get over there for the students' first uh, couple of weeks, it, it, it is a really nice thing to do. I know I really enjoyed having my mum come and settle me in to uni and you know, going shopping for all the stuff in your dorm, that was pretty fun as well. Um, <clears throat> I, I know it must be really, really difficult to come home that first time and have the house really empty. Um, some some parents end up hosting exchange students. I think that's like a really cool, um, that's a cool way to fill up the house again if you're finding that you miss that, you know, youthful, studious energy of a high school student um, or host um, yeah, different different exchanges, language students, um, that can be really cool. I know that in some countries, uh, families have gone to hosting like teenage refugees, and that's another nice way to um, open up the, that space in the home. Um, of course, it's much easier now to keep in touch with your, uh, with your kids online. You can use Zoom and communicate the way you and I are doing right now. And that certainly wasn't possible when our parents were at university. It was you know, letter writing. <laughs> Absolutely. They've got it easy now in compared to, compared to a, a, the letter writing sort of process, which was all too easy. Actually, we just had email. We just had email when I went to uni, but it was still very much... Well, I had email. I don't think my parents knew how to use it uh, back then. Uh, Amazing how things have changed. Sarai, thank you so much for your time. Really interesting to get those insights on, uh, you know, how university students can better handle the shift from home to uni for the very first time. Saraya Beheshti, the regional director at Crimson Education, who help uh, basically help kids get into posh colleges, uh, including the Ivy League. Uh, Really good to hear from you. Thank you very much for your views. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Hello there, welcome back to the programme. Yes, as thousands of students start university for the first time, uh, we are spending this half of the programme getting hints and tips from parents and pupils on how to handle this period of transition. For many students, uh, it is the first time they've lived away from home, a change that might actually affect more pupils, uh, sorry, more parents than pupils as mums and dads struggle with empty nest syndrome. Joining me now is a family who's already been through the upheaval, uh, UAE resident Anne Jackson, who's also a CBT therapist for One Life Coaching, and her son, Davy Jackson, who is studying at University College London. They've both joined me in the studio, which is absolutely brilliant. Thank you very much, both of you, for coming in. It's lovely to have you with us. Uh, Davy, I'm going to start with you because you're the student. You're now a second year student. So you did all of this last year. Um, How did you find uh, your first year? Because of course, it was the tail end of COVID as well. So you were going in as a fresher. uh, And and actually, you didn't even need to go to lectures, did you? Uh, Yeah, I think uh, sort of, it has been a big thing for students this year and last year, especially. 
uh, with sort of COVID restrictions, it meant that uh, you sort of didn't see very many of your course mates. A lot of stuff was online. All our induction stuff was online. Um, fortunately, I wasn't as bad as students in sort of 2020 who were often in lockdown. So we, I was able to sort of meet people at society events and at the lessons I had. But I think it was definitely quite stressful. And it adds to sort of uh, when you're away, uh, you mentioned that earlier, sort of the fact that you don't have anyone looking over your shoulder, don't have any responsibilities. Now suddenly you also don't have to go in every single day. Most of your stuff is online. So it was very easy to sort of get sidetracked and you miss an online lecture, you can watch it again later and then sort of you end up quite behind the curve. So, um, Oh, wow, I've not thought of that. So you sort of lost the structure uh, of, of the day in some ways. Did you feel before you travelled over to the UK from Dubai, because you grew up and studied the whole time here in Dubai, so it was your first time away from, you know, living away from home. How did you feel before you took that flight? How, how, what was it like? Um, so sort of I'm quite fortunate in that I was raised English and got to go to university in England. So I think I didn't experience much sort of the cultural difference. Uh, there was the element of sort of being away from home for the first time. Uh, so that was sort of slightly stressful. But I think once I sort of got into England, uh, got settled in, uh, I found it sort of quite an easy transition. And you found it easy to make friends. You didn't get the jitters. I was really nervous about making friends. I was really unsure about whether I managed to. So, yeah, I'm sort of uh, like don't normally hang out with sort of the stereotypical crowd. And I think it was actually quite good at university because there's just UCL is the biggest university in uh, the UK. And so as a result, there are so many people there that I think it was quite easy to sort of find this one specific niche that sort of matched my friendships. And I've That's got so nice. You found your crew, basically. Yeah. So I now have sort of friends who are sort of really similar to me in a way that I think it's quite hard to do. Uh, when you're sort of at school here, uh, like my year was about 130 odd um, studying at DC. And so going from that to several thousand students, it is daunting the size, but also a lot easier to sort of, yeah, find the people you fit with. That's awesome to hear, actually. Really lovely. Uh, so that And that's very encouraging, I think, for parents who are about to send their kids off uh, into the into the wilds. Of, of maybe London or New York. Uh, Anne Jackson, uh, Davies' mum, also joining me in the studio here. Now, obviously, you're a therapist, so you've got a very even-headed uh, sort of attitude towards yes. these things. But, you know, your boy, you sent him off to London, aged, I don't know, 18 or 19. Uh, were you nervous? Did you travel with him? I didn't have a chance to travel with him because it was just the back end of COVID. So he had to go on his own and he had to um, isolate on his own. Nerve-wracking, that. I didn't like that because I wanted to be there with the food package and buying the quilt cover and, you know, settling him in. I really did want to do that, and I couldn't. So I found that sad that I missed that experience. But there was nothing we could do. We were in a pandemic, so nothing we can do about it. I did go in October in the half-term here, and I took my daughter, who's still at school here, so that we could go see where he's at, actually physically see and go to his halls and, and go to the university so that then I have a physical representation of where he's at and that was really nice that was really calming were you nervous that he might go off the rails without your calming maternal influence um I was more what I've actually missed um I was going to say I haven't missed him that much. I, <laughs> the truth I, come out on Dubai I 103.8. <laughs> I, I mean, we do miss having him around, of course. But because, as you were saying earlier, it's not even email time. It's Zoom time. It's WhatsApp 
time. It's so easy to stay in touch now. And my daughter actually asked me a question the other day saying, you know when you're on holiday in the summer and you'd like have to catch up with everyone when you came back? And she's like, we don't have to do that. I know what my friends are eating every day of the w- week in the holiday. So I always know what he's doing. I can always sort of zoom in. I can always have a call with him. They're basically on the other side of, I know it's a device and it's a screen, but they're there. So there's not that much time to miss them. You're not pining for them. Um, we don't speak that often. There's no rule that you have to call me every Sunday at three o'clock. But when we do speak, we have really long conversations. They're usually really interesting about what he's doing and what's going on. And Davey's very open and, you know, tells me everything, basically. So I think he tells me everything or nearly everything. Um, So we have really interesting conversations. So I actually I like it. So you feel you still feel connected. I mean, David, did you ever feel homesick like when I feel homesick here I go into Marks and Spencers for some reason there's something about the shop that just makes me feel uh, like I'm back in the UK but there isn't the sort of same thing for the United Arab Emirates in in London is there Uh, I yeah I just didn't feel homesick fortunately I think uh, like I said sort of the fact that I grew up sort of culturally British meant that a lot of the things that I sort of associate with home are sort of the same yeah we go shopping here at Waitrose and I mean I don't go to Waitrose because I'm a student I go to Lidl but (laughs) like it's the same sort of thing and so I think I sort of have that benefit of not feeling particularly homesick yeah that's good I mean that must make such a difference but I know Anne that you've dealt with families for whom that hasn't been the situation at all that actually some students have felt homesick and found it really hard to to settle in yes so I had some parents last year call me up and say could I do zoom sessions with their um, children who had just gone to university and I think the reason they wanted me from Dubai is because I know the Dubai scene I also know where they're at in the England scene so I can relate um, and there were some people and I've been here a long time and I've seen children go and come back and they're now in their 30s and I knew them when they were 11 and and you know some people really do appreciate Dubai of the structure of Dubai, um, the cleanliness of Dubai, the easiness of Dubai, and they suddenly get back to the UK and, you know, the roads aren't quite as clean because, you know... And, at all, and at there's all. graffiti everywhere. Yes. And dodgy people on street corners that yes. you just don't get here. And, and they don't like that at all, um, and they feel unsafe. And they also you know, miss their friends here because... So, Davey, as he said, he made such a great group of friends at university... Um, more so than probably he had here. He had great friends here, but he's had even better friends at university where some people have great friends here and then don't find those friends at university straight away. So they really miss it. They miss their structure. Um, and so, and, and then they get anxious because they don't know what to do because mm-hmm. they're missing their structure. And some people also go over with friends from here thinking that they'll stay friends and they end up not staying friends. And that's actually quite harder because they've got an expectation that's not being met as opposed to going on your own and finding your friends. So th- there's many reasons why somebody could get anxious while they're at university because it's the unknown that they don't know about. Absolutely fascinating to hear that. I know I found my first year at uni very difficult and then settled in brilliantly in the second and third. But I think it's in many ways you have to do that or that full immersion. I mean, I was spending half my time still uh, mm. in my life in London, which I'd had during my gap year and then only half in the Newcastle University. And I think you have to go for the, the full immersion, a bit like you did, David. You know, when did you come back? When was your first trip back to Dubai after you, you were at uni? Uh, so I came back over... Christmas, of course. Um, So I had done sort of the full first term there and then it was another several months until uh, sort of spring holidays where I could come back. So it was, yeah, I was spending almost all my time sort of 
three straight months in London and I didn't really have like family and such to sort of head off to so it was just the life there but it sounds like you just thrived and it's going really well which is absolutely awesome to hear both of you thank you so much for coming into the studio amazing to talk to you and to get those insights thank you very much indeed uh, Anne Jackson CBT therapist for One Life Coaching and importantly in this context uh, Davy Jackson's uh, mum and yes. Davy thank you very much indeed to both of you for coming it's been a pleasure thank you thank, thank you very you. much this is Eye on Education on the Agenda with the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai sister school to one of the most respected schools in the United Kingdom now accepting applications from FS1 to year eight. Okay, welcome back to the show 1237. It is time for us to travel people, virtually at least, because it is uh, time for our My Classroom feature. It is the moment when we get to explore a school somewhere else in the world. We've travelled in the past to the jungles of Costa Rica and Bali, to the African savannah and the boat schools of Bangladesh. And today we're exploring a school without a permanent base. Think Global School is an independent high school that travels the world with its students studying in 10 countries over the course of three years. Joining me now to explain how that works in his classroom is one of the teachers, Christopher Allonge. Hi, Christopher. How are you joining me on Teams? I'm doing good. And how are you? I'm really good. Thank you. And I'm very excited to hear about this school because, frankly, it sounds awesome. How do you choose when and where to take your students? Well, I wish it was a me decision, but unfortunately it's not. It's a decision by the board and the team who kind of sit at the top and they kind of identify countries which, you know, will, which will provide the students with um, learning, with, with a learning environment where they can, you know, go away and learn about the world, learn about that culture and then be able to bring it back into their own home culture. So they make the decisions. I mean, which countries have you been teaching in over the last few years? Um, Dubai, well, the UAE. So I spent, you know, um, a few months in Dubai, um, Oaxaca in Mexico, additionally Greece, and most recently Botswana, which was really, really amazing. That is ridiculously cool. How many children do you have in your classroom? And where are they from? What type of parents choose this type of high school for their kids? Well, we have a varying, you know, range of kids. So in, in my cohort, so that so the school is actually split into two cohorts and each cohort has about 30 students each. So um, we travel the world with these 30 young people. Um, they come from different countries. We've got students from Kazakhstan, from Egypt, from the States, Mexico, Nigeria, Lesotho. We've got students from all over the world and they all come in, into country with us and, um, yeah, and spend two months with us, basically. I mean... It sounds cool, but it also sounds quite sort of itinerant and maybe um, disruptive in some ways. What is the mission of the school? Why, you know, what is the principle behind Think? Why, why do teachers and the organisers think it's a good idea to move students from country to country each term? Uh, so what is, so we don't actually do a typical curriculum. So we do um, project-based learning and place-based learning, which to- which ultimately means that we focus on where we are. So our classroom is wherever we are. So it's not necessarily disruptive. It's um so you can so you know you might go into your local school and there's a set classroom, there's a set building. We are the school. So wherever we go, that is where the school takes place. And ultimately the mission is just to create um students that are engaged around about the world, that are global thinkers, that want to give back to that want to give back to the world. So 
with things like globalization, the world is such a smaller place. And, you know, and um, so we're kind of exposing them to that, but we're not, but we're saying that the world is bigger than your local city. The world is bigger than just your country. The world has so much more to kind of offer. And we're going to learn about that while also learning maths and science and English. So we, we do do, we, we learn all of the skills that are needed to excel education wise, but we just do it in a very unique way. Do you do exams like uh, GCSEs or A-levels or the IB? So it's not mandatory. So um, we so we do projects and, you know, the kids are graded on those different projects. I think the thing that, you know, shocks most people is we, live, we leave a lot of autonomy up to the young people. So they actually self-grade with our guidance. So we guide them through the different projects, but they will self-grade at the end. And it's kind of like a partnership. So we kind of, you know, we take them through these seven-week um, projects, and at the end of it, we sit down and, and we grade that way. They do do examinations in the sense that if they want to go to a specific university, then the university might then request that they do that they have a certain amount of points or scores. So then they will go away and do those um, do those exams to then be able to qualify for that university place. So your kids, do they start at thirteen and go up to eighteen? So the youngest is 14. Okay. And um, there's only, there's maybe about five who come in at the age of, um, sorry, youngest is 15. So there's about five who come in at the age of 15. So that's our grade 10. Then we had grade, grade 11 and we have grade 12. So most kids will finish at the age of 18. Um, some start at 15, others start at 16. And I mean, can you describe the school day? Is, is, it, is it fairly structured, where, you know, whether you're in Oaxaca or whether you're in Botswana? No, it's, it's, you, I couldn't give you a typical school day. Um, That's so interesting. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll try and think of a day we had where, uh, so we, we start around 9, 10 o'clock, and um, so then we may have like a classroom session so a classroom session could be, okay, so we talked something about syncretism in uh, Mexico. So we might then, you know, introduce what is syncretism, what does it look like in Mexico, different examples of it. And then, um, then we go have lunch and then the afternoon session, that might actually be going out to, for like an excursion. So we might go look at an historical site where we can kind of see syncretism. For example, we can see how, um, when the Spanish came into Mexico, rather than just abolish all of the indigenous um, beliefs, they kind of worked together to create this new belief system or this new way of living. So they didn't get rid of all the indigenous temples, they just built on top of it, or they incorporated a lot of their cultures and beliefs into what they were bringing into the country. So we kind of do a lot of theory. We also go out and see things on the day-to-day. You know, we do do PE, we have maths lessons, so we have languages. But to give you a typical day, it's impossible because, you know, things are so, so, so different. Um, every country will offer something completely different. You know, we went, we was in Botswana and we was by the Okavanda Delta and we're, we're counting the tracks of elephants and, and um, lions and hyenas and other animals. And then in... In Mexico, we could be learning about, you know, the culture of God knows what. So it can it completely changes um, on a day to day, and especially on the in, especially depending on which country we're in. 
Sounds absolutely fascinating and totally counterintuitive to what we're used to here with with formalised schooling uh, in the UAE. Uh, My children, for example, follow the British curriculum. It sounds completely bananas compared to that. But enormous fun and and brilliant to speak to you, Christopher. Thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Christopher Alonge there, he is a teacher at Think Global School. They're an independent high school that travels the world with students studying in 10 countries over the course of three years. I have to say, I think my kids would absolutely love it. I think I'd love it. I wouldn't mind being a teacher like Christopher.